So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'd love for you to turn there if you would and prepare your hearts as we're going to read together in just a moment. For those of you who enjoy the sport of boxing, uh, perhaps uh, you'll agree with the evaluation of many on the number one fight of all time, which was the third matchup of Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier, dubbed the Thrilla in Manila. You remember that? If you're old enough, if you're old like me, you remember that. It was, uh, it was contested in 1975 for the heavyweight championship of the world in the Philippine Coliseum on Wednesday, October 1st. The fight was watched by a record global television audience of about 1 billion viewers. That's hard to believe, isn't it? Sixth of the world's population watched that fight, including 100 million viewers watching the fight pay-per-view on closed-circuit television and 500,000 pay-per-view buys on HBO home cable television. Ali and Fraser had split the first two matches against each other, and so the anticipation surrounding the bout was huge, uh, bigger than the fight had ever been, and perhaps since. And as this one progressed, everyone assumed it would go the duration, end in a decision after 15 rounds. Fraser and Ali, they beat each other mercilessly for the entirety of the fight. There was no more mystery between them. They'd seen each other twice before. It was a true war as you watched it in the ring. After the pomp and circumstance, of course, of the introductions and the roar of the crowds, Ali and Fraser recall that they would last through grueling round after round, go to their corner, wondering if there was some way it could stop. They said they didn't hear anything except the ring of the bell for the next round to begin as they moved out of uh, their corner to the center ring. In the 14th round, Frazier's corner threw in the towel. And for weeks after the match, uh, both fighters spoke about the contest. Ali said, quote, that was as close to death as I'd ever been, end quote. He said he couldn't go on any longer, but that just Fraser had given up before him. He was so beat up when he came to his corner, he asked his corner to cut his gloves off. He couldn't even raise them and unlace them himself. It's possible that dealing with hardship on this message series that we've been talking about, perhaps that illustration has highlighted a similar situation in your own life. Either in the past or right now, maybe, maybe you're not hearing anything except the sound of the next bell. And you imagine someone saying round six or round four or round ten. And all you're really remembering is just walking back out there to do it again. You don't hear anybody's voice. You don't hear the crowd around you. And maybe you've hoped that someone would throw into the towel into the ring like Frazier's second did for him because you don't think you can take it anymore. And if you're not there now, maybe you have been, and without a doubt, it will be where you are headed at some point in your life. We saw that the Apostle Paul understood that situation all too well, and we saw this illustrated last time in 2 Corinthians 1.8, where Paul said, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. We spared a bit of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves. That was Paul's condition. He had the sentence of death on him. He reckoned already that they weren't going to escape without the death 
of one of them, his life looked like that on a daily basis. And Paul is not alone in those feelings. As we saw last time, there are many believers throughout history that have been in those types of uh, contests. And as we saw last time, it's going on around the world while we meet together today. And so, maybe it's timely for you now, if your life looks something like the Ali Frazier bout, and maybe it's comforting for you to know as you look back on hardships and difficulties and know God was at work, or maybe it'll be the way that you come through the next trial. But in 2 Corinthians 4, there is an appropriate section that helps us appreciate some keys to lasting ministry and how we can come through the rough seas because we're able to lay some waypoints to keep us on course. Now, let's take a brief look at those waypoints, if you would, with me. I'd like you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. And those are not only keys to surviving difficult times and being able to say with Paul, we do not lose heart, but coming out of them of, on course for lasting ministry and a fulfilled life, really reaping the benefits God had planned for them all along. Look with me in your copy of 2 Corinthians 4, and uh, we'll review for a moment to our benefit. Verse 1 says, therefore, since we have this ministry, and that first waypoint that we saw was, Paul was certain about the validity of his calling. There is eternal impact connected to the ministry of the gospel. And you don't have to be, uh, you don't have that on your own. You don't have eternal impact on your own. It doesn't matter how important your job is, someone is going to hear your testimony of the gospel as you go through difficult times, as you go through hardship, as you go through pressing pressure, perhaps as you approach even uh, eternity. Somebody's going to hear your testimony of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit's going to go to work, and God's going to graciously save them. And I asked you now, as I asked you months ago when we went through that point, what other thing in your life will you do that will have that kind of result? Nothing. Nothing that you'll do in your life will have that kind of result. So the very first thing Paul said was, in the middle of difficult times, we have this ministry to do. Next part of verse 1, look there, as we have received mercy, and that's the second thing we saw as we think about difficult times. Everything we are, everything we have, everything we can do is the result of God's mercy. And so then whatever the course may be, you can run it, and whatever the fight may be, you can take it, and you can keep the face because it's, it's all mercy. We're getting what we don't deserve, which is grace, and not getting what we do deserve, which is condemnation. And when you keep that in mind, you can endure the hardship, you can endure the unkind words, you can endure difficult people, you can endure all those things because when you keep in mind that we've received mercy and it's all mercy, you can keep the faith. And those are two waypoints by themselves, I think, that help diminish the worry about the next round that we face. And when we do that, we can say, when we, when we know that we have this ministry and that internal, eternal impact is greater than anything you'll do any other part of your life, and secondly, as we receive mercy, then you can say with Paul at the very end of verse 1, so we do not lose heart. Just those two things help us to say we don't lose heart in the middle of hardship. And then look at verse 2. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. And that's our third waypoint as you think about your life and as you think about the spiritual battles that you're in and all the difficult things that may be coming along. Make sure that you win the spiritual battle with temptation and sin on the inside over the long haul. It's easy to get into, and even on the surface, it's easy to get into 
uh, thought process of why me, why do I have to go through this, this is really not fair, it's not what I expect, it's not what I deserve. And those are some of the things that are embarrassing for us to say, but certainly not all of them. And so it's the whole process going on inside of us, perhaps how we, how we imagine ourselves, what we think about on a daily basis. Paul says we've renounced the things hidden because of shame. You know, Ali and Fraser couldn't hear the crowd, they said, when they were in the ring, but God tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he wants us to be aware as we deal with the inside sins and things that nobody sees and we don't want anybody to see, so we're constantly renouncing them. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 tells us to be aware of the crowd as we deal with private things that can waylay our effectiveness. The passage says in Hebrews 12, 1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, in other words, there's a whole throng of people in heaven who've gone before you, who've dealt with the same things you're dealing with, perhaps have gone through hardship like you, or maybe even more difficult uh, than yours. Those people who've dealt with the inside things and, and wrestled with putting to death the deeds of the flesh, they surround you. So he says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. So, beloved, people who have as their goal a lifetime of, in, of lasting ministry and want to look back on a rich and fulfilled life, no matter how long or short uh, that life may be, are going to be paying attention to doing more than just surviving another round. They're going to be actively involved in putting to death the deeds of the flesh, or as Paul says, they're going to be renouncing the things hidden because of shame. Because if you're looking for long-term, uh, time reveals the truth about who you are over time. You can hold that in, in uh, check for a while. Perhaps you can put up a, uh, some kind of uh, border or wall to keep you from people seeing who the real you is. But over time, the real you is going to come out. So Paul says on a daily basis, you're renouncing the hidden things because of shame. Hebrew says... Um, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Paul says in another place that we're actively to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So that's an active battle, and that's something you want to be involved with, even in the middle of difficult times. And one of the pr first ways that, uh, that those kinds of thoughts come in is when we start thinking somehow that the things of our life are unfair and we're, we're in a place where the Lord's not really dealing faithfully with us. That's the, that's the beachhead where sin gets a hold a lot of times. And so we want to avoid that. Then the last part of verse 2, it says, not walking in craftiness. Look there in your copy of God's Word. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God. And that was our fourth uh, point to stay on course in ministry during hard times. And it comes with a commitment to never use the Word of God in such a way as to sell it or accomplish some goal in ministry by manipulating people by the Word of God. So long-term ministry, faithful ministry, fulfilled life. You don't want to spend your life doing those kinds of things, somehow thinking you're in charge of the outcome. So you've got to manipulate things to make people do things you want them to do in ministry. But that last part of then, verse 2, it says, but by the manifestation of truth, this is what you want to do, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And that's our fifth waypoint. And this is be uncompromisingly faithful to present scriptural truth clearly and plainly over the long haul. You don't have to be some, uh, you don't have to be some super creative genius. You don't have to come up with some new, uh, new illustration every time and, and, and edgy things that you do and somehow manipulate the whole thing. You just uh, have to uncompromisingly, faithfully present scriptural truth clearly and plainly over the long haul. And people may hate you like they did Paul and people may wish you were dead like they did Paul and they may they wish you weren't there like they did Paul. They may make you wish that you didn't have to go back there like they did Apollos. 
And people may betray you and they may defect from you, but no matter what the hardships, no matter what the trials, no matter what the difficulties, no matter what discouragements, no matter what the assaults were, no matter how he might have been unjustly attacked and criticized or how the world picked up with him where they left off with Jesus or how he was constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, he never watered down the scriptures or twisted it to gain some personal end. And as a consequence, as a consequence of just making that his firm commitment, Faithfulness to the truth over the long haul commended him to the conscience of people, even to his enemies, even to people who discouraged him, even to people who, who, who uh, uh, left him, even to people who attacked him and unjustly criticized him. And, and Paul called on God to witness that fact. When I bear out difficult times, he says, I'm approved by God, and Jesus looks good to those who watch. That's all you got to do, see. In the middle of hardship, in the middle of difficult times, in the middle of hard, hard people, uh, people who are, are creating hardship for you, this is what you have to do. Then look at verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And that was our sixth waypoint. Uh, have a bold witness. Have a bold witness. It really specifies exactly what our first point was, which we have this ministry. Paul says, listen, don't ever be discouraged about having a bold witness. It was one of the ways we saw a couple weeks ago that we pray for the persecuted church is that they have a bold witness in the middle of pressing pressure when they have to make decisions on the fly and they don't have a lot of time to prepare that they'll have the right things to say when they're questioned, when their hardship is put on them. Take advantage of every opportunity given to you by the Lord. Just make the gospel clear by what you say and how you live. And then verse 4 says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Three things we saw about the unredeemed that should motivate us as we have this ministry and we want to keep the gospel, make the gospel clear. The gospel's hidden from them and they're perishing. That's their current state of affairs. They, they are dead, they're alienated. And Satan has blinded their minds to understanding the gospel. So the question is then when we come back, okay, well, we have this ministry and we want to make the gospel clear. What can we do about those things? What can we do about the gospel being hidden from them and they're, being, and they're perishing and Satan has blinded their minds? Nothing. But you know what we can do? And that's verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And that's the seventh and eighth waypoints for us. Lasting ministry is a ministry without ego and number eight, lasting ministry is a and a fulfilled life will be marked by a life of service. We, we can't change people. We can't take the veil off. There, there's no way that we're going to be able to deliver them from uh, the blinding of the evil one. Only the Lord can do that. But we have a job to do. We know what we can do. We don't preach ourselves. We're not making our disciples to ourselves. We're just, praising, uh, just preaching Christ Jesus as Lord, see, and ourselves as your bondservants. We're not going to control the results. We're not going to control the outcome, but we can spend our lives serving and boldly declaring the one who is able to do that. Now look at verse 8. Or rather, verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the faith of Christ. And that's the ninth step, acknowledging that God is the only one who can accomplish lasting results. And that helps us avoid burnout. It helps us avoid... Um, uh, having the idea that, that somehow we didn't get what we deserved. Just 
acknowledge God's the one who's going to give the results. He doesn't have to tell us when he's going to do it. He doesn't have to clear it with us if it's okay, if he does it a certain way, or if he works in the hearts of people in a certain way because of the ministry that you have. He doesn't have to clear any of that with us. He just asks us to be faithful to do these things. In the middle of difficulty, Paul says, this is how I'm getting through all of this. This is how I survive attacks on me personally. This is how I attack, I survive uh, integrity attacks and, and, and criticisms. I, I survive times where I've been beaten and, and put out and all the things that happen to me. This is how I survive that. God's the only one who can accomplish lasting results and I've given out the gospel and I have a clear conscience so I'm just going to keep doing that and then we avoid burnout altogether. And then look at that next part of verse 6. But we have this treasure in, or verse 7 rather, we have this treasure in earthen vessels and that's our 10th stop, lasting ministry comes from understanding and admitting our own inconsequentiality. We saw that, right? You in and of yourself, and we've seen this already numerous times in our sections of First and Second Corinthians, you in and of yourself have no ability to accomplish anything. In fact, we're described as most frail and the most common of vessels holding the marvelous truth of the gospel. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And that's our 11th stop. The power of the glorious gospel is not a product of human genius, it's not a product of human technique. It was never a, the messenger. It was always the power of the message. And then this next section really takes us into our present illustration. Look at verse 8. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, as Alex prayed today, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying, verse 10, about in the body of the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And perhaps you're going through these types of things which takes us right into today and, and our illustration this morning. And you're not hearing the crowd, and you're just dreading the sound of the bell signaling another round. And, and, uh, and our, our next waypoint, number 12, comes from those who stay on track, who know with Paul that we are to use difficult times as a way to make Jesus visible to others. A way to make Jesus visible to others. It is the paradox of seemingly impossible circumstances that are used by God to bring about his own purposes in the lives of those who are his. And not just hardship, then verse 11 says this, as we finished last week, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And that's waypoint 13 we saw last time. Your death can be a vehicle that Jesus uses as a witness for the gospel. So verse 12 says, death works in us, but life in you. And we saw last time as we looked at many modern ministry illustrations of Paul's reality that regardless of whether our life comes to an end sooner or later, waypoint number 14, lasting ministry is a ministry of giving up your life. It's always been that. Salvation is giving up your life to find it, right? Ministry has always been the use of your life for the gospel's sake. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that if your life ends sooner or later, whether you're a Peter who's crucified upside down or you're a John who lives to a very old age. Either way, a fulfilled life, a life that, of lasting ministry is a life you're going to give up for the cross and that's the life that will bear the fruit of the gospel. And beloved, people will reap the fruit of your difficulties for Christ's sake and they'll reap the fruit of your hardships for the gospel and they'll reap the fruit of your life manifesting Christ even in your death. See. And so Paul's really taking this, this, this whole scope of perhaps what your life may look like, and he's just made it look purposeful, hasn't he? That's the reality of your life as a believer. Your life is purposeful, and God doesn't waste any of the suffering. He doesn't waste any of the hardship. He doesn't waste any of the difficult times that come to you when you respond in the way that he wants you to respond, see? 
So remember, as you're you know, dreading the sound of the next bell, it's not meaningless like the thriller in Manila really was, ultimately meaningless. Your weakness is no barrier to the purposes of God. And he wishes to accomplish some certain thing in you. And he wishes for his son to be manifested in you. So don't throw in the towel and yell, I don't know why you're doing this, God. Be patient, see, in the fight, for he's making you into a vessel of tried worth. And that brings forth hope. And hope doesn't disappoint, as we saw last time. Now look at verse 13, if you would, in your copy of God's word. 2 Corinthians 4.13 says, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. And that's our next waypoint as we see the first part of verse 13. A key to lasting ministry of fulfilled life is this, that you are convinced with unwavering assurance that what God has said is true. And that really predicates everything that we just got through reading, doesn't it? I mean, you really have to come to this with an understanding that what God is telling you here is the actuality. It's so easy to say, well, that's, I know that that's what it says, but that's not what I feel, see? And to coin a modern phrase, the facts don't really care about your feelings, okay? The fact of the matter is that this is precisely what the Lord has said, and you're going to have to go into difficult times with an understanding that is uncompromising and unwavering that what God has said is true. That, and that conviction, beloved, that conviction is going is, is to impact how you live. It's going to impact the decisions you make. It's going to impact the attitude you have. It's going to impact your planning. It's going to be the motivation for sticking it out. It'll be the source of your current comfort and your hope for the future. Paul says, it doesn't matter if I suffer. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's purposes are at work. See, that's that that's an unwavering conviction that God's purposes are at work in the life of the believer, that nothing is random. See, nothing is random. And beloved, some of the suffering that we bring on, and we talked about this a number of months ago, we won't go through it again. Some of the suffering we have is suffering for wickedness, you know? I mean, sometimes we can look back on our life and realize we made some really bad decisions and now we're paying for them. Can I tell you this? That if you're a believer, the Lord can take all of that too and make it work for your good. Did you know that? So don't imagine somehow, I mean, you, you got yourself in a mess because you made bad decisions and now those things are falling down on you and somehow God, that's escaped God's notice. He's not involved in that particularly, okay? Because, you know, you're just paying out your dues. That's not it. As a believer, we can be assured that the one who started a work in us will be faithful to complete it. We can be sure that even in difficult times and no matter what it is, that we can't be separated from the love of Christ and that he's got a, a work to do in us and he can use that to perfect us. And Paul says, you know, it doesn't matter if I die, I'm going to come back from the grave because Jesus did. We've seen Paul say that numerous times. I had the sentence of death on me. I thought I was going to die. In fact, that's what I thought it was, going to, was going to happen, but it didn't matter because God can raise the dead. See, an unwavering commitment to what God has said is true. And so that was with Paul and strengthened him in his resolve to last out whatever it was. See, so let's look at the wording because Paul reaches back, and I love this. this one, it was just so sweet to me this week to go over this again. Paul is quoting something. And as we encourage each other all the time to look to the scriptures to carry us through hardship and that when we're having a hard time and we're feeling down to say true things, see, say true things about our life, not, not negative things, not bad things, but true things about how the Lord is at work, not magnifying the untruth, which is, I mean, I, I, you know, I have no reason to know why I'm going through this difficult stuff. 
or just magnifying the negative part of it, but instead magnifying the positive. So let's look at the wording, and we've encouraged you, seek the word of God, let that be an encouragement. Uh, Paul says, I encourage myself in the word constantly. We see that, Paul saying, I built myself up in the word. David, a number of times we see, but I, I, I encourage myself in the word of God. What does that mean? That means you went back and you saw what God had said, and that became the truth for you, which it actually is, and that axis upon which you circled now. Okay, instead of circling your own feelings, you're circling the access of God's truth, see? And Paul is reaching back into Psalm 116. I'd like you to turn there. We're going to spend a few minutes there because it is, I think, substantial for us uh, in what Paul is going to reveal about his time in the Word. So Paul is encouraging himself. He's quoting a, a, a significant part of it here uh, from a passage he obviously used to encourage himself as he went through difficult times. And that gives us a glimpse of some special verses that he meditated on, and I think that that's something significant. If you think about the Apostle Paul, you think just this, this rock, this guy who always knows the right thing to do. You know, you know, we, we understand, Paul says, you know, that we're, we're perplexed. I didn't always know where to put my foot next. I was off the path, it seemed, and I was lost, but I wasn't discouraged because I didn't despair because God knew the path, right? Uh, I knew that perhaps I was going to be uh, killed but for the gospel's sake, but I understood that God raises the dead, so if he wanted to keep me going, he could just raise me back up. That was no hardship for the Lord. So Paul reaches back, and he is using something that is, is encur- has been encouraging to him in difficult times, and I think that's significant for us to look at what Paul was referring to. So straight from Paul's heart to ours, here's, Paul says, where I pulled my strength in the middle of difficult times. Here's where I learned some of the things I believe, he says. Um, but having the same spirit of faith, so he says that, but having the same spirit of faith and, and the same spirit of, is, that is expressed in the quotation which he's about to make is the same faith the psalmist had. So he's referring to the faith that David had and he's saying, I have that very spirit of faith which is expressed by David. Spirit of faith, of course, means substantially the same thing as faith itself. A believing sense, an impression of the truth. Paul says, I hold unwaveringly to the same conviction that David had. Now, what was that? And that's the question I ask. Okay, if you believe, therefore you spoke, and it's the same kind of conviction David had. So my next question is, and as you read your Bible, so what was that that David found so assuring to him that Paul read and found so strengthening for him as he went through a difficult time. And that's what we're going to look at for the next few minutes. So Psalm 116 and verse 10 is our key verse that Paul's, uh, Paul's uh, queuing up on. So let's look at that. Uh, David says in Psalm 116 verse 10, I believed when I said I'm greatly afflicted. So this is the passage Paul is quoting. And so what did you believe, David? And that's really the essence of it. When the trouble was really on you, when you were in a pressing pressure, what was your firm conviction? Because that's what he says, I believed when I said, I'm greatly afflicted. So what did you believe? That's what Paul's saying too. I believe, therefore I spoke. So we got to know what that is. So let's look at the rest of the passage. Look at Psalm 116, verse 1. And there's a place in notes where you can copy down some of these takeaways if that's helpful for you. So Psalm 116, verse 1, I love the Lord. Do you see where we are? Look there in your copy of God's Word. I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplications because, I love this, He has inclined His ear to me. Well, what's the first thing David, was, David believed when he was greatly afflicted? When pressing pressure was, that's the word affliction in the Hebrew, but that is pressing pressure. It's the same word we've been looking at all along, the squeezing of grapes, the squeezing of olives to produce the oil or the, fruit or, or the juice, okay? David says, when I was greatly squeezed, I believed. What did I believe? Well, here's the first thing. He has inclined his ear to me. I'm convinced that the Lord's attention is on me when I call out to him. Is that encouraging to you? 
You can believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt, hold unwaveringly to that, that the Lord's attention is on you when you call out. David said, I firmly believed that when I called out to the Lord, he heard my voice and my supplication. He turned his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. So that's my response. David says, I knew firmly that he has inclined his ear to me, and so I'm going to call on him as long as I live. That's a great starting point, isn't it? As soon as you speak to the Lord about affliction that you're in, he has turned his ear to you. That's hard to believe that the God of all the universe is interested in yours and my problems, and yet that is absolutely what's being said. And Paul is affirming that, and we see Paul affirm that in a number of other places. We could spend the whole time just talking about that today, but we won't. I look at verse 3. The cords of death encompassed me. You know, I'm going to call him as long as I live. Nothing's going to change my mind. Well, what was your situation, David? Well, here it is. Sounds very similar to Paul's situation, doesn't it? You can see why Paul gravitated towards Psalm 116. He was right in the middle of hardship. The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. And that may describe your life now. It may have described your life in the past. Perhaps it will describe your life in the future for some time. I don't know. What was the cause of the distress and the sorrow? Well, David thought he was going to what? He thought he was going to die. Sounds very similar to Paul, right? I had the sentence of death. I carried the actual proclamation, you're going to die, along with me. I didn't think it was going to escape with my life. So he thought, uh, David thought, I'm going to die. We don't know exactly what the situation was here in David. We don't, get, we don't get an illustration of the actual time that he was in this affliction. We can read through the life of David and realize any number of times throughout the course of his life he could have penned this, or after he came through, he could have written it down. And so it's not clear, but he certainly was caring about the decree of death, as we saw last time in 2 Corinthians 1.8. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. See that? O Lord, I beseech you, save me. And he knew that the Lord heard. Why? Because he was convinced that the Lord's attention is on him when he calls out. So he said, Lord, save me, just like Paul did. David called out to the Lord to save him, and he did. So what was David thoroughly convinced of? Well, a number of things, right, that were at work. The attributes of the Lord. Let's look at verse um, 5. Gracious is the Lord. So he gives kindness when it isn't deserved. And righteous is the Lord. Now, the word righteous is the Hebrew tzadeh, which just means lawful and correct. The word righteous in the New Testament comes from the Greek word dikaios, which just means observing divine law or upright, faith, faultless, innocent, guiltless. In other words, no one can bring a charge against God. He's completely and utterly correct in all he does, and there's no shadow of turning. Whatever it is you're going through, God is gracious, and he is righteous. And those are the things you want to hold unwaveringly to. He is gracious. He gives kindness when it isn't deserved and other things when they're not deserved because everything's mercy, isn't it? And he is righteous. And then, yes, our God is compassionate. Those are three things David knew. He, he said, listen, when I call on to the Lord, call out to the Lord, I know his full attention is on me and I know that he is gracious and he is righteous and he is compassionate. And I love that part. He's compassionate. You know what that means? That means somebody else's heartbreak becomes your heartbreak. 
And I was reading my quiet time on Thursday this week, and my attention was drawn to that um, from John chapter 11. You remember this, right? This is, uh, this is a marvelous chapter. It's a chapter that I teach on many times at funerals. It's, it's one of the most marvelous chapters in, in all the New Testament, I think, but because of things that Jesus has said here. But John eleven thirty two 32 says, just, just to illustrate this, God is compassionate. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, you know the situation, right? So Jesus is far from there. Lazarus is sick. He hears word that Lazarus is sick. He doesn't go right away. He stays two days, and then he goes, okay? So Mary just states the obvious, the obvious fact of faith that if you'd been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Why? Well, because you have the power of life, and we wouldn't have to worry. And then this, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. What's that mean? He related. He was compassionate. It means someone else's heartbreak became his heartbreak. And said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him? It was obvious. Now verse 37 says, but some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. I'm going to stop right there because we could go on and just teach this. But I want to point out a few things that I think are important. What's the answer to verse 38? What's the answer? Could he not kept the man from dying? What's the answer? Yes, of course he could have. Right? It, it was said as accusation, I mean... Come on, you could have kept him from dying. What's up? And what's the answer? Most assuredly, he could have, right? Was his power to save or deliver in any way inhibited or diminished by his compassion? The fact that he related to them, he wept and was deeply moved in the spirit. Was his power to save Lazarus in any way compromised? Did he reveal somehow he's weaker than we thought he was because he cried over the death of Lazarus? Not in the least, right? In fact, was he able to have compassion and also work out God's plan for God's glory? In other words, arrive too late to heal Lazarus on purpose? Do you see where I'm going with this, beloved? Does he have the power to deliver you out of your difficulty in a heartbeat? Yes. Is he in any way diminished because his compassion is poured out on you and when you call on him, he hears you and focuses attention on you and that he has, he's moved to tears because of your tears? Is he in any way inhibited to work on your behalf? No. Was he inhibited to work on Lazarus' behalf? No. In fact, we read earlier that he found out Lazarus was sick and waited two days before he headed to see Lazarus. I am the resurrection and life. 
He who believed in me shall live, even if he dies, and he who lives and believes in me shall never die. He told his disciples that Lazarus was dead. He says, Lazarus sleeps. They're like, Lord, well, if he's sleeping, he'll get better. He's like, no, he's dead. He's dead. And I'm glad we weren't there, he says, so that they could go and the disciples could believe. Believe what? That he had the power over the grave, simply. He had the power to deliver Lazarus out of the grave, not just to heal him, but to deliver him out of the grave. And Lazarus' death, beloved, catch this, was to prove a heavenly point. Did you get it? He could have gone at any time and saved Lazarus. He knew Lazarus was sick when he was far away. He could have just spoken the word and Lazarus would have been what? Healed. But he had an intent in the suffering of Lazarus, right? Someone he loved, it says. The scripture said he loved them. And he had compassion on them. But was his compassion in any way weakening his ability to, to move on their behalf? No. And did it change his plan to bring God glory through the suffering and death of Lazarus? Not in the least. But it didn't change the fact that he heard when they called and he had compassion on them. And see, I think this is important to keep these in perspective. Because you haven't moved out of the scope of the Lord's love and compassion for you just because he's having a difficult time for you right now. And for Lazarus, and we could say poor Lazarus had to prove a heavenly point. I mean, it wasn't even, it didn't have anything to do with his own, the Lord chastening for wickedness. It had nothing to do with just the frailness of the body. And, and the fact that we live in these, you know, clay vessels that are prone to disease or, or sickness or hardship, it, it didn't have anything to do with that. In fact, the matter is, he said, I'm glad I wasn't there and Lazarus is dead and I want you to believe. And he goes, right? It's to prove a heavenly point and bring glory to God. But in all of that, the grand scheme of the future kingdom was on display. And in that display, Jesus what? Wept and was deeply moved in his spirit. And I think that's super important. And I found great encouragement in that, beloved. I think back over the hardships that I've had in my past, and, and sometimes I wondered about all of that. And, and you know, and you, you can look back now and you say, okay, well, the Lord was at work here, and he, he made me this way, and I had to, I had to learn the lesson more than once because I was very stubborn and, and hard-headed. But he was familiar with the heartbreak, generally shared in it, see? And, beloved, does that bring you comfort? That should, I think that should bring you great comfort, as you assimilate that, as you, as Paul said, unwaveringly hold on to the exact statements of God and you know they're absolutely true, see? And if you do, that should bring a new dimension. If you understand that he, he, he is, has compassion and he's gracious and he's righteous, because that, that should bring a new dimension to your understanding of God's response to the trials in your life and that when you call on him, you have his attention, see? That's so amazing. That is so wonderful. David was firmly convinced of God's compassion, and so was Paul, and nothing could change his mind. And so Paul, in his difficult times, he goes to Psalm 116, and he sees all these attributes of God, and he says, therefore, I read it, I understood it, and I believed it. See, it lifted up his spirit. And, and remember, it appears that as, as if this was a passage that Paul meditated on in the middle of his own hardship and the sentence of death was on him all the time. What else did David discover that Paul then was able to be encouraged by? Well, look there at the verse six, if you would, of Psalm 116. The Lord, it says, preserves the simple. In other words, he watches over those who are not relying on earthly wisdom. That's what that means. Uh, that means those who are open to instruction. You haven't already made up your mind about the difficulties you're in and you're open to the instruction that comes from the Lord about them, see? You haven't determined you're a victim in Wyoming, oh God, but you've determined that you're going to listen to what the Lord says. See, he preserves those. 
those who believe every word he says. And that passage expresses Paul's waypoint, doesn't it? That's just a way that Paul, Paul re-expressed that to us. He was unwaveringly convinced that everything God had said was true, and he believed it. See? And so his convictions gave him a firm foundation to stand on. Where did David learn to believe the word of the Lord? He says, I learned to believe because I was brought low. I was brought low and he saved me. Then he says, return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you, for you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. And again, very similar to Paul, right? He has delivered us. He will yet deliver us. Paul, Paul prayed for the Lord to deliver him, even though he had the sentence of death. And so you can see Paul's words coming, flowing out of Psalm 116 and encouraging the modern church right up until now. Where did Paul find his encouragement? He encouraged himself in the word. He, he found out what was true, not what he thought, but was actually true, and he dwelt on those things. And we're going to see later in, Psalm, or in, in 2 Corinthians where we're to take captive every thought. Beloved, do you know how that happens? It happens because you begin to understand what God has said about your condition, and then you begin to believe that, and that supplants the other thoughts, and you are unwaveringly committed to understanding and believing what God has said, and that becomes your conviction. See, I was brought low, and you saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. That sounds familiar like words from Job, doesn't it? The power of eternal life is in God's uh, hands. He's promised that I will see it. Remember Job in Job 19, 25? We've talked about him a lot because he fits right in here, doesn't he? In hardship. Job says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will take his stand on the earth. So I believe that. I believe that he lives and that he's going to rule. That's great. That's great. And, and in the middle of Job's very difficult time, which appeared to Job that he was going to end in his death because Job was also proving a heavenly point, wasn't he? He was proving a heavenly point to Satan himself. And the Lord was using Job to show Satan, hey, I have people who will unwaveringly commit to believing in me regardless of their situations around them. And so, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and, that, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth even after my skin is destroyed. Catch this. Even after I'm gone, okay, I'm dead. What does he say? Yet from my flesh I shall see God. So how's that going to happen? Well, there's only one way that's going to happen, right? That he's going to be what? resurrected after i'm destroyed yet in my flesh what i will see god i have unwavering commitment that regardless of what he does right now he has the power of life and death and he has life in me and he will raise me right that's that can, it can only mean that who, who i myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another and my heart faints within me just even think about that whom i myself shall behold he just wants to make sure you understand is not talking figuratively in my flesh i myself after my skin is destroyed and everything is gone I'm going to see him in my flesh, me, myself, and my eyes will see him and not another. See, I'm not talking about my sons after me representing me later and seeing the Lord in his flesh. I'm talking about me, see. No matter what happens, whether God delivers me or not, see, same, same ideas that we're seeing all through our New Testament passage, whether I have to go through trial after trial or... As David just said, he dries my tears and I return to my rest, whether I carry around the sentence of death for Christ's sake or to prove a heavenly point like Job, I have to go through difficult times or like Lazarus, the Lord is going to actually take me so he can make a heavenly point that he can raise life back anytime because he is the resurrection and the life. That's not future. It's walking around in a person called Jesus, see? 
No matter what happens, see, in my flesh, I'll see God. The power of eternal life is in God's hands, and he has promised me that I will see it. And no matter what price I have to pay, it isn't high enough to buy out my conviction that God's promises are true. See? And so I think as David encouraged himself, we can be thoroughly encouraged that uh, Paul was encouraged by David's understanding of who God was, and he passes that on to the church and just says, listen, let this be your firm conviction. Stand on this and then declare, I believe what God has said. So really, as I go through the round after round, I don't get into the same mindset as Ali did, which is, can somebody please deliver me from this? How am I going to get out of here? I'm going to die here. See? Now, here's the verse when Paul was quoting. That's the next thing, verse 10. Look there with me if you would. I believed when I said I'm greatly afflicted. So now we understand that, right? In other words, um, in the middle of my affliction, I had faith in God. I had faith that God gives me his undivided attention when I call out to him. I believe that God is gracious. I don't get what I deserve. I get what I don't deserve. I believe God's righteous. He never does anything wrong. And his discernment concerning all things is perfect and unassailable. I believe that, see. I believe that he is compassionate, that my heartbreak is also his heartbreak, and I believe that when I call on him, he hears me, and I believe that he watches over those who believe what he says, and he has assured me that I have a future hope and that it will not fade away a secure future that has a permanent, glorious resurrection at its beginning. At its beginning. Your future hope has a glorious resurrection at its beginning. That is so encouraging to know. That's just the step inside the doorway to your future hope is your resurrection. And every steadfast believer we read through the scriptures gives us that example over and over again. I believe what God says and I stand firmly on this and that conviction carries me through round after round after round. Whatever it is God wants to do, he's up to a purpose. And he's got a plan for me and he's gonna make me come out on the other side with patience and then being a proven vessel of tried worth and that's gonna give hope and that's going to give hope. We're going to see one more in just a moment. I'll just give you a, a preview of it. I believe God because he highly values and cherishes my physical life. We're going to see that in just a minute. It's my, it's my favorite of all. All these are my favorite. This is, this is so great. People have read this passage a lot, perhaps wondered what it meant. I think we can clear that up right now. Let's go quickly finish up this passage from the Psalms that was so encouraging to Paul, straight from Paul's heart to ours. Look at verse 11, if you would. Psalm 116, verse 11. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. So that's on the back side of verse 10. And so something's implied here, which is what I believed. So he says, you know, I believed when I said I'm greatly afflicted. And I believed when I said in my alarm. So it's implied. It's part of the same idea. When I said in my alarm, all men are liars. In other words, some of my trouble came from people. So some came from physical hardships, some came perhaps from difficult times or, or what, unhealthy body or whatever, and some came from people. And I, I think as you, read, uh, as you read the Apostle Paul, do you think he could relate <laughs> that some of his trouble came from people? I mean, he's writing a church that created most of his problems, at least in that immediate uh, past and future of the writing, right? I mean, they, they were very hard on Paul. So when he reads David said, you know, I believed when I said in my alarm, all men of liars. What did I believe? I believed everything I've already said. Uh, God has his, he works his plan out even through difficult people that he, when I call on him, he hears me. 
See, and he's gracious and he gives me undivided attention. And I don't get what I deserve. I get what I don't deserve. And he's righteous. He never does anything wrong. Even in difficult people giving me a hard time, he's still at work in my life because his judgments concerning all things are perfect and unassailable. And he's compassionate. And, his, and my heartbreak is his too. And when people wound him and wounded Paul and he was, he was crushed underneath their comments and, and, and they said things that were so heartbreaking to him and they deserted him and all that stuff, he just says, listen, I believe. And when David had people who, and we, we can read this in David's life, people who deserted David, who, who stabbed him in the back, who did all, his own son uh, did what he did. And David, I believed when I, when I, in my alarm, when I said all men are liars. And then he gets a little reflective. Look at verse 12. He says, um, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefit towards me? That's great, isn't it? You're coming off, you're coming off all the hardship. You're coming off, I stand firm in this conviction, and I know that means hardship for me. What, what can I render to the Lord for all his benefit towards me? What can I do to repay God for all the things about him concerning me that I've experienced and I know without a shadow of a doubt? What can I give to him uh, for that? Look at verse 13. I shall lift up, I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. What's the answer? Not a single thing. I can't pay the Lord back for all of his goodness. I can't pay the Lord back for all the hardship I came through that made me who I am. I, there's no, nothing I can offer to him, in other words, to recompense him, to settle the account. That's the idea. You gave me something, I pay you for it. I buy your lawnmower and give you the money and I get the lawnmower. Not, you can't do it, see? I'll take what he's promised me and praise him for it. That's it. I'll take what he's promised me and praise him for it. And, and there's no way I'm going to call his judgments and his hardships I had to endure into question. That's how I'm going to respond. See, I can't give him anything for what he's done, but I can make sure that I just lift up the cup of salvation. See, And then verse 14 says, I shall pay my vows to the Lord, Oh, may it be in the presence of his peoples. In other words, I'll be faithful to do what he's instructed me to do Paul says it this way, therefore, since we have this ministry and have received mercy, we don't lose heart. We keep a good testimony. We preach Christ, not ourselves, and we serve. See, Paul's saying basically the same thing. I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to pay my vows to the Lord. I'm going to do what he's asked me to do, see? And may it be in the presence of all his people. In other words, may he get glory for the fact that he's just at work in me and I'm, doing the, I'm just preaching Christ, not myself, see? That's what Paul would say. And then this last thing that David knew, and Paul knew, mark this, my favorite one of all of these. Look at verse 15. You've seen this before, perhaps. Perhaps it was a question, how, how can this, what does this even mean? But I think as you come off of what we've just been reading, I think it becomes clear. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Here it is, but it's not really that hard. Um, his attention is on those who are his one of his servants comes to the end of their physical life. Not only does he know, and it, it is the, the Hebrew adjective yakar, just means not only does he know the death has happened, yakar means to set by highly esteemed. It's a word used to describe costly jewelry. It's what you do with costly jewelry. You set it by, it's highly esteemed. You place it in a place of prominence because it's valuable to you. It's priceless to you. And I would say, beloved, David didn't and Paul didn't think for a second that just because it's the temporary physical life of a believer that it isn't highly valued by the Lord. Keep that in mind, beloved. 
just because it's a temporary life and we're looking for, and sometimes we just kind of pass off the death as if, you know, well, it was just temporary. Now they get, you know, now they see Christ. Now they get their, you know, their heavenly body and all that stuff. And like, it, like the physical passing wasn't important. And, and the Lord throws all of that out and just says, he says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Keep that in mind. Not only is the Lord compassionate and shares your heartache, your life is highly valued, highly valued. And although the Lord is sovereign, I say to this, woe to those who take it by persecution and take it by martyrdom. If precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, then woe to those who steal it. Woe to those who end it. And the Lord's sovereign in all of that, and he brings about his own glory and all of that. But that doesn't absolve the people who take it, right? Any more than the people who crucified Christ, although Christ said, um, you know, forgive them, Father, they don't know what, you, what they do. It didn't absolve them from the sin, did it? Didn't absolve them. He still had a hard heart. So he had denied his deity, right? They come and they don't know what they're doing. That's what he says. They don't know what they're doing. But that didn't absolve them, did it? And here's the deal. You know, your life is precious in the sight of the Lord. Your physical life. And when it comes to the end, it is highly, highly esteemed and valuable. Then look at verse 16. O Lord, surely I am your servant. I'm your servant, the son of your handmaiden. You have loosed my bonds. Everything I am, I owe to you. He just praises the Lord. You are the one I'll serve. Now, everything David said about God here in Psalm 116 was a result of his belief, see? And Paul, like the psalmist, was in circumstances of trial and affliction. And the language which both used was that which was prompted by faith. Faith, which led them to give utterance to the conviction of their heart. David firmly stated his confidence in God and the things he knew about God by how God had sustained him. And Paul firmly stated his confidence in the glorious truth of the gospel, our risen Savior, and through those things confidently declared, we do not lose hope. See? Now, just for the last eight minutes of our time together, go back to our passage in 2 Corinthians 4.13. So Paul just says it, we had to take some time there because he only captures a very small portion of Psalm 116, but you realize that he spent some time there. And as we go through that passage, you realize that he's duplicating for us precisely what David had learned, and he's passing that right on, which is what we do, isn't it? And we saw that earlier in, in, this, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians, right, that as we've been comforted by Christ, as we grow and mature and become uh, uh, vessels of proven worth, we become comforters of others, we help to bring them along. This is precisely what Paul's doing, and he's doing it in a very clear example of I encourage myself from the Word of God, I stand firmly on these convictions that this is how God is, and this is why he does what he does, and I'm passing that on to you, and then you are too, grab it and stand firmly on it and you pass it on to somebody else and you make Jesus look great and you proclaim his, his life even in your death. See? So those are marvelous things to think about. I think very weighty things um, for us. Now look at verse 13, 14 again. But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, so I have faith based on what God has said and, and we see that he's referring to Psalm 116, I believe therefore I spoke. We also believe David said that, we also believe, so he pulls you in, see, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. So Paul pulls everybody in, he pulls you in, he pulls me in, we also believe. This is why we do what we do. Paul, why do you, how can you stand so firm? How, how can you have these commitments? How, how can you set these waypoints? Why? Well, I, I believe what he, God has said, and, 
and that's where I stand. This is why we do what we do. This is why we carry around the sufferings of Christ. This is why we're not concerned that we carry around the sentence of death for Christ's sake. This is why, as we saw um, in Manumar, uh last week that they just went they just go out in the middle of of hostile buddhism and hostile uh islam and they just established a church and they just preach and they learn their life down every single day and they know they might not come home and yet they're being delivered right they're still being delivered see this is this is why we are afflicted in every way but not crushed and perplexed but not despairing and persecuted but not forsaken and struck down but not destroyed. And, and we're not just surviving round after round dreading the bell. See, we're, you know, sorry that we got in the ring at all. Why did I even do this third matchup? You know, I'm sure both of them were thinking. Why was I, what was I thinking coming to do this again? You have to have the same spirit of faith. Know beyond a shadow of a doubt the nature of God in the hard times. He's up to something and you can't have a lasting ministry, beloved, and a fulfilled life if you haven't come to the conclusion that all these things are true. See, you're just going to be a victim your whole life. You have to at some point decide that what God has said is true and this is how I'm going to live and this is what I'm going to say and I'm going to capture these thoughts and I'm not going to say the other ones anymore. See? You have to come to the conclusion that these things are, are, are true or you're not going to have a ministry. You're going to be a ministry to someone constantly and any attempt to teach the word without a conviction that every word of God is tested and found pure just comes off as hollow right I mean it's, it's like some of these guys we listen to on the radio it's just like what and you know what you know what they believe and just like that's just empty and why, why would this be true and then you say this isn't true I mean, you just compromise the whole thing and you, you crack the foundation see all lasting ministry is, is ministry that God can use for eternity, and it's unashamedly and unabashedly based on what the Word tells us is true, like Romans 3, 4 says, let God be true, and what? Every man found a liar. If every man has to be found a liar, so be it, because God's true. That, that's such a great, so cut and dried, really black and white kind of thing, you know? I like that in a world that we have to mince our words all the time. Let God be true, every man found a liar. Lasting ministry, fulfilled life isn't built on, I know that's what God says, but I feel, I think, you know, does it, does it seem, any, any statements like that, that's the, that's the bad direction to go. After I know, what, I know what God says, but I think or I feel or it doesn't seem. There shouldn't be any disconnect between what the Bible says and what you're willing to proclaim. That's the ministry that has lasting impact. See, Paul was never bitter about his suffering. He, he was never bitter about having the sentence of death, about all the things that people said about him. I mean, he was relieved when the Lord delivered him out of those things, right? I mean, it's, we, can't, we can't pretend that we're not relieved to be on the other side of the trial, on the other side of the pressing, or we're, we're glad to be gone, done with it, right? We rejoice in what the Lord's done, and we're glad to be done with it. And Paul was relieved. And just as a footnote, of course, and you know this, but there was one that, one of the pressing pressures, the, the sentence of death that he couldn't tell us about, that's the sentence of death that was carried out on him in Rome, right? We don't get any writings about that because Paul's what? Paul's with the Lord, right? But we know that Paul knew that God would yet deliver him. Didn't he say that? He'll yet deliver me. And we know that that's precisely what happened. And we know that outside the city limits of Rome, God just did just that. And for Paul... The sentence of death was gained. For me to die is what? For me to stay with you is good for you, but me, for me to die is gained. So we know Paul already established. He was standing firmly on the foundation of his convictions that to die is gain, that the Lord can make Jesus visible through my death. And we also know from today that this physical death was, what was it? Set aside as precious 
and valuable to the Lord. Did the Lord take notice of it? Just like he takes notice of the death of every believer. It's precious and valuable and set aside as costly to him. See, something of immense importance. Along with all the wealth, I mean, just imagine this, what I was thinking when I read this again. Um, Among all the wealth and the splendor and the majesty of heaven, and that's pretty substantial, right? Paul's death and every believer's death has great status. Among all the wealth and majesty of heaven, the death of a believer has great status set apart as immensely valuable. This leads us to our last waypoint for today to keep us on course for lasting ministry and a fulfilled life. Here it is. Verse 14. Stick with me. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. So this is just a kind of a recap of what we've talked about. Kind of skirted all around it all, you know, I've got the sentence of death on me, all that, and we just talked about Paul's actual death, but verse six, uh, number 16 uh, of, of waypoint, waypoint 16, it keeps us on track for lasting ministry and fulfilled life. Those who finish well are strengthened by the same thing that strengthened Job and David and Paul and the many, many hundreds of thousands throughout the, the history of the church, and that's the surety of the resurrection. Paul understood that it didn't really matter what happened to him. He was absolutely convinced and sure that his death is only temporary and only physical. And I'm sure on the outskirts of Rome with a Roman soldier's sword where Paul's head was cut off. Of course, there's churches there now and fountains and everything else to memorize, uh, moralize what, Paul, what happened to Paul. But he, he wasn't concerned about that. He didn't really care what happened to him. He knew his death was only temporary and it was only physical. He knew it was valuable to the Lord and the resurrection was eternal and that made all the difference. That made all the difference. And so as Paul shares his heart in our letter, it becomes very apparent from so many different statements as to why he accepts with joy the things God brings along. He knows it's God's way of humbling him and making him weak so that he can become powerful. He knows it's God's way of bringing about perseverance and proving character and hope. And he knows it's God's way of making him a comforter to others. So no matter what hostility came his way, it didn't matter if his life was given up. He's never going to change his message because he's certain of the need to be faithful to his convictions. He has the spirit of faith and faith attitude consistent with what was written by those who have come before him. And this isn't his main point, but because the resurrection is so sure, all the more reason to, be, uh, to believe and to be committed to saying what needs to be said. See? The resurrection is sure, so just be committed to say what needs to be said. You know, and it, if you want to set some waypoints that are going to be key to lasting ministry, beloved, as you do your ministry, this is just from my heart to yours, you know, don't worry about how people are going to react to what the Bible says. Just worry about whether what you're going to say is true, okay? That's, that's really all you got to worry about. Just make sure what you're going to say is true. I, I read this somewhere. I don't remember where. And those of you who are ministry uh, guys, check Jesus before you wreck Jesus. You get it? Using the word exegesis, okay, the explanation of Scripture. Check exegesis before you wreck exegesis, okay? Just make sure what you're going to say is true. You don't have to worry about what people are going to think about what you say. Worry about what you're going to say is true. There's, you know, out of the kitchen to the table. That's what a galley slave does, right? Out of the kitchen, Lord's prepared it, to the table, and try not to spill it between those two places, right? There was a, an article written by a guy, and I'll just finish with this illustration. His name is Rick Etzel. Don't chase him down. He's not worth the read, but I'm going to pass him on to you because he was in, he's in a, um, a website called churchleaders.com. And he wrote this article in, in April 14th of 2011. They reprinted it Thursday, unfortunately. 
and the title was Five Ways to Exegete Your Audience. Here's how not to do ministry, okay? And I can't make this up, all right? I can't make up ridiculous things like this. This, is, this actually is what people think. Here's, here's what he said. It's five ways. This is how you prepare your sermon. He said, number one, understand your culture. The lifestyle, the mindset of society has to do with what people are feeling is what he says. Um, what interests them, what they value, what pains them, what they fear. So that's the first thing you're supposed to do as you prepare your sermon is understand your culture. Number two, know your audience. In the business world, he says, this principle is referred to as knowing your customer. He says you get to know your audience through surveys, studies, demographics, psychographic tools. When preaching is based on recent and accurate information about the hearers, then your message will be relevant. Not making this up. Three, profile your typical attendee. In other words, take the information you've gathered about the culture and the community and develop a profile of the typical attendee of your church. Paint a picture of them in your mind. Identify their age, their education, their likes, their dislikes, recreational preferences, money issues, expectations, salary, family status. In fact, try to know them better than they know themselves. That's what you do as you prepare your sermon. Number four, ask the right questions. Typically, preachers ask themselves prior to a sermon, what will I talk about? better question is to ask, to whom am I speaking? And I would just stop the article right there. How about neither question? How about what does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? And how does that apply? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That, right? How about that? And then fifth, preach from the heart. I can understand that. Intent of your preaching is not to fill up an allotted time slot in order in the order of worship. You don't mount the pulpit to hear yourself speak. Aren't the four questions we just asked? Hearing yourself speak, beloved. I mean, come on. I mean, you don't you know you don't want to hear yourself speak, but rather deliver a message from the heart of God to the heart of the heavens, uh, uh, to the heart of the hearers. It's a noble and frightening task, and I would say to all of that that. Um, your message is silent to heaven. You're not accomplishing anything of eternal value as long as you start with men. You pile up all the things men like and dislike and you make sure that you deliver that and that when people go out they feel good and you're worried about what they think and where they are and all that stuff in your life. I would say that's the opposite of what Paul says preaching is supposed to be. I'd say that's the opposite of a galley slave, see? But that'll sell. And if you do that, you'll, you'll have people who will come in here no, there's no question about that. They'll, when they feel good about themselves going out, they'll come back with their friends. Hey, you're going to feel good when you get out of here. And, and sometimes we do feel great, don't we? I mean, sometimes we walk out and we're so encouraged because the Lord has done so much for us. And that's a good thing. And sometimes we feel like we've been in a wrestling match and we got pinned like seven times, okay? And we can barely get up and we walk, or, or we're like Ali and we walk to the corner. We can't even lift up our arms. We have to have them cut the gloves off. That's what we feel like, right? And it shouldn't matter what the final outcome is, right? It's just, what does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply? And you just teach it. That's what you do, see? You, you know, lasting, lasting ministry of fulfilled life belong to people who have long-term unwavering convictions based on the word of God, and they don't preach themselves, and they go through the hard stuff, and, and they're not worried about whether everyone feels great when they're done. It's the big picture. And Colossians chapter 128 says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, and teaching every man, that's warning everybody and teaching everybody, that's the word admonish, with all wisdom, 
so that we may present to every man complete in Christ. I have a job to do as you do your ministry. You have a job to do. What is it? To warn people and teach people. And so with wisdom so that through the word of God, you can present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, I also labor, Paul says, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. This is the reason why I'm even here. It's the purpose of my life, Paul says. This is what Paul does. So he quotes from Psalm 116, I believe, therefore I speak. So he says, we speak, and this is integrity, and integrity belongs to lasting Christian ministry. What he believed is exactly what he said, and that's what we're supposed to do, see? And we have to be careful if on the private side, uh, beloved, you say you know what the Bible says about something, but on the public side, you're unwilling to say it because then people will not trust your integrity and you're not going to survive over the long haul. Silence might mean comfort. It might mean acceptance. It might mean popularity. It might even mean life. It's like John Huss, a Bohemian Czech reformer and martyr, asked at the last moment by the Duke of Bavaria to recant what I taught with my lips, I see with my blood. What he believed is what he said. This is conviction. This is the staple of lasting ministry. A person who just teaches the word of God because they believe it won't have to hunt around for the right thing to say. <laughs> they won't have to take a bunch of surveys to figure out if their audience is going to like it. They won't have to hunt around for what to say. They're not going to have to look every week and figure out what am I going to say to this people they just say the only thing they can say, which is exactly what the Word of God says, and that's exactly what the people of God need. But having the same spirit of faith according to what's written, Paul says, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Paul says, I believe it, so I say it. And the worst can happen is I die, and that's okay because... He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you, and that's okay. I'm coming right back from the grave. That's my word to you today, beloved, from what the Word of God has to say. And I know it's a lot, and I know we learned a lot of where Paul found his strength, but he strengthened himself in the Word. My encouragement to you is to do that, to do that. As you're hearing the dinging of the next bell and you're, thinking, you're just dreading the whole thing, just realize... As a believer, you are right where the Lord wants you and he has compassion on you and he has a tear in his heart and his eye for you. It's sincere concern, not just a passing, uh, fleeting kind of, oh, that's really too bad like we say to people, but he is invested. And so allow him to carry out his work in you, whatever that is bring about his own glory and know beyond a shadow of a doubt what he said in his word and that even if it results in your death that it is only temporary and you have the lasting hope of the resurrection the one that all faithful believers throughout the throughout the epics of the world have all stood on to make their faith firm let's bow and be dismissed in prayer lord we thank you today for your word we pray that you'll seal it in our hearts help us then to become uh, more like you through the formation of the thoughts that you would have us to say, through uh, the um, conforming our mind and our, our responses into ones that would reflect who we believe and what we believe. And so, Lord, uh, I can't really say anything else besides what your word has already said, so I don't want to pretend like I'm going to add to it. Just use your word, multiply it in our hearts, help us to know how to begin to change our thoughts if we need to, and our responses so that we might bring more in line with what we see is going on here. It's at Corinthians 4 and so many other places. And Psalm 116 is David 
declared who he believed in and why Paul was strengthened by that and then passes it on to us and let us be strengthened as well that we might strengthen others also. Pray for our uh, evening tonight that we get together and just celebrate uh, family and love and, and those things that you've given to us. We're so grateful that we can have fun and encourage one another and, and enjoy our, each other's fellowship. Pray that you bless that fellowship. And as we go out this week, help us to remember that we, are, we have this ministry and earthen vessels as treasure. Help us to give it. Provide opportunity as we've I've been encouraging you over and over again, beloved. As you see opportunity, please use it. Lord, help us, empower us, open our Open our, our hearts, open the hearts of those who don't believe, open our minds, open your word, help them to uh, understand it and respond. Let's be faithful gospel witnesses. I pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.